years, they come and go, they come fast, they come slow, they go like the last light of the sun all in a blaze, all you see is glory, but it gets lonely there. Hello and welcome to Music Talks, discussions on music education from Florida Anatomy Collegiate. I'm David Ramos providing future music educators with advice and insight gathered from conversations with music professionals on relevant topics and issues present in music classrooms across the nation. People lust for fame. I'll be honest with you. These past couple months have been difficult as the COVID-19 pandemic looms in the background of what has continually been described as an unprecedented moment in our nation's history it silhouettes an arguably larger threat. Recent occurrences of police brutality and systemic racism have led to uncomfortable yet necessary conversations, discussions that stare these issues in the face and ask how can we improve as a society, learn from each other's differences, and celebrate them. But most have seen it all. They live their lives in sad cafes and music halls. I recently attended a group question and answer session led by a local activist who asked if any of us in the room had ever used a textbook in high school that was written by a black author. I sat and realized how, to my knowledge, I'd never even performed a piece of music by a black composer. This was shocking to me, but it made me think, how do I, as a future music educator, provide my students with a holistic, diverse education if I'm not fully educated on the music of black composers myself. Don't they always? But you never know the pain. I sat with this information for quite some time, reflecting on the lack of diversity in the band, orchestra, and choir canon and how the history of black music is often never addressed in the classroom. And then I thought of this podcast. Why not address those issues here? Use this podcast to broadcast the stories of living black musicians and celebrate their music. Without defending This episode's topic, Perhaps Black Music Matters. conversations with black musicians, listening to their stories as educators, performers, and composers, and learning how music educators can celebrate the music and history of underrepresented musicians. I'm David Ramos. This is Music Talks. Stay with us. Kissed you on the cheek. make it when they're old. Hello. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. How's it going, Dr. Garrett? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm very excited. Okay, so our first guest for this episode is Dr. Marcus Garrett. I'm Marcus Garrett. I teach at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln as a choir director. He's a conductor, educator, performer, composer. Just dealing with a wide range of things as it relates to music. 
we talked a little bit about his story and how he first got involved with music. Yeah, I started out, I tell everybody that I came out of the womb singing instead of crying. So I've been, I've been in music my whole life. Uh, even the times that I tried to get away from it pulled me right back. So yeah, music has always been a part of me. When growing up, I did most of my musical activities at church. So whether it be a church musical, singing with like the praise team, the young adult choir, um, actually sang in a quartet uh, with some friends in high school and yeah, and then got to undergrad, decided that this was really what I wanted to do. And yeah, all of my degrees are in music now. Mm -hmm. So who would you say was the most inspirational figure going through your musical career? Um, I would have to say Roizel Dillard. He was my choir director in undergrad. And those four and a half years, he gave me so many opportunities when I was a student, having me to attend the conference that our school was a part of. Every time it, there was like a collegiate festival choir or honor choir, he had me be a part of that. The core library was always open to me. He allowed me to play the piano in the choir room, even when he was working. He let me just play through music all the time. Anytime I finished a piece of my own, he I would share it with him. And he never once discouraged me, even though those pieces are really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I have some of them, so I know that they're bad. But beginning of my sophomore year, for a big university function, uh, the combined choirs performed one of my pieces. And then my last semester, same thing happened. If he had to be away, even before I was like officially in a student conductor, he was like, all right, Marcus, I have to go out of town. I'm not going to be at this rehearsal. Can you teach this music to these groups? And I'm like, whoa, okay. So yeah, he definitely is like a huge reason for why I, why I do what I do. I mean, I, I owe so, so, so much of who I am as a professional to him. That's awesome. You mentioned you did some composition in your undergrad. Is that when you started composing, arranging? Uh, technically, no. Um, okay. So I would say the first piece that I wrote was, <laughs> well, I had a little uh, Casio keyboard or whatever. Who knows how many keys it had on there, but it was really small, no way to keys. It was really not that great of a keyboard. But it had one of the demo songs was uh, Freelis. And a friend of mine and I, we were probably seven or eight years old. We would go with the the young adult ministry of our church over to the nursing home. And we went because it said, oh, well, old people always love to have young people around. So we would go and I took that tune, not knowing what it was or who had written it and added some, uh, some text to that. And then um, in probably middle school, my parents bought, we got our first computer. They bought me a notation program just because they thought that that was the thing to do. I didn't really know much about what I was doing, but I tried, I played around with it and came up with some things. I vividly remember creating a few arrangements of the Star Spangled Banner. But yeah, so those, that's really where I got started. And then in undergrad, my freshman year, I remember being at a festival and heard Rasefni Paul, we sang Rasefni Paul's Non Nobis Domine. And it was there that I said, oh, well maybe I can do something like this and I can still, look at a couple pieces in my old catalog that like I don't have written down anywhere for people to actually know that I wrote them <laughs> but I still have the scores and I remember that I did those couple pieces because of what I had experienced 
And that's really where I, uh, I got my, I guess, my formal start in composition was combining the, what I learned in theory, what I taught myself, the music that I had sung in choirs and music that I just tried to play because I'm not a pianist and definitely was not one back then. But the stuff that I saw other composers do, I was like, well, I will just try to do that. Did I have some successes? Eh. Did I have some failures? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't let those things get me down. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't. You definitely have a number of works out right now that are just phenomenal. We'll get to those in a bit. But you mentioned some of your research. You went through your undergrad, through your doctorate. And I'd like to take a look at your PhD work, which focused on Dr. R. Nathaniel Detz, who was actually a professor at Hampton when you did your undergrad. Can you talk a little bit about who he was? Yeah, so uh, so Depp was actually born in Canada, and he was the first Black student to get a degree from Oberlin Conservatory. And after teaching at a couple schools, made his way to Hampton, what was then Hampton Institute. And the choir in his, um, I believe he was there for 18 years, 17 or 18, in his time there, the choir was the reason why everybody knew Hampton Institute. So much so that he was later asked to leave the university because he was essentially more famous than the president of the now university. So um, while he was at Hampton, um, his most famous piece, Listen to the Lambs, was published. The thing that is most important, um, and I'm like, if people don't remember anything else about debt, they should remember that when it came to, especially his choral music, he understood that in the early 20th century. Uh, We're thinking segregation, Jim Crow. I mean, this is all uh, post-Civil War, but things were not great. However, things have been getting better. As I said, he was the first Black student to get that degree from Oberlin, and there were not many who were there. Um, So there weren't a ton of schools, especially in the South, that were allowing Black students to enroll. So as some were able to get education, most of them remain Christians. They would go to church, but they started distancing themselves from the more demonstrative denominations, the ones that are more vocal and more participatory. <laughs> so they tended, the more education they got, they tended to then move more towards what some people might consider like high church. So we're thinking like Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Anglican, maybe even Catholic. So he, all, he noticed that as they went to those kinds of churches, they then either just stopped seeing spirituals or they specifically had a disdain for spirituals because for many of them, it reminded them of slavery because they were either former slaves, they may have been born into slavery or their parents or grandparents were slaves. And so they didn't want to remember any of that stuff. Well, if you stop singing the music, like we know, especially back then, you know, not enough was written down, that music will die. So he said, this music is too good, it's too rich, it's too important to our history for us to just disregard it and discard it. So he decided that he would do like J.S. Bach did with Lutheran chorales or with uh, what some of the, as they say, I think he said the Bohemian composers would do with their folk music. He said, we can take that and then use it essentially as source material or thematic material for larger works or those genres that we consider to be of a certain stature. So anthems, motets, um, cantatas, even eventually with his thesis in oratorio. So he used Black folk music that way to keep it alive 
but he was doing something that nobody else really around him was doing, which which is great. And I mean, his music is so um, it's so tuneful. The other lines that he adds to them are always fun to sing. I tend to just sing all the parts. I'll have to listen to the song four times because I need to sing all of them because they're that fun. They are that much fun. So yeah, those are the things that I that I love, love, love about his music, and I'm grateful that more people are starting to know about it. While researching Nathaniel Dett, Dr. Garrett has drawn inspiration from Dett's work for his own compositions. Dr. Garrett continues to study the non-idiomatic choral music of black composers and brings awareness to it whenever he can. We eventually got on the topic of his own works, including his arrangement of Hold On. Yeah, so Hold On, um, I still remember like where I first saw that tune that where, and it wasn't like at somebody else's arrangement. This was back when I was an undergrad. I wanted to do spiritual arrangements because we sang quite a few spirituals. Cool. I remember writing out some stuff and I, I would work on like six, seven, eight, ten pieces sometimes at a time. Just writing stuff down as things came to me, then I'd go back and like, oh yeah, oh yeah, let me do some more with this, let me do some more with that. So I wrote a few things down in that notebook, put it away, didn't touch it. And then the summer of 2005, decided to pull it back out, discarded almost all of it except for what ended up being the motive throughout that, which the tenors and basses uh, start off with. And in probably four hours that night, I probably started like 10 o'clock at night, 2, 2.30 in the morning, I finished that piece. And the next day, I sent it to my teacher. He was like, I like this. We're gonna do it. You're actually gonna teach this as part of class. With my spiritual arrangements, um, even now, I've always been one who wants to make sure that the tune itself is retained at least once in the piece as I found it in like a collection or something like that. Mm -hmm. I may later on add my own little thing. I mean, every now and then I might have changed um, something else just because I felt inspired. But I try my best as often as possible to make sure that that melody is very prominent, that you don't hear a lot of the counterpoint that happens around and that becomes most important because this music was not created by me. Um, it was created by, by people who were oppressed and that kind of stuff, not knowing that, their music, that the music that they just created out of an emotional need would end up being something that would, I would venture to say is going to stand the test of time. With that piece, what we know with a lot of spirituals is that the stories that are told in the songs don't always make sense because they were not intended to be like birth to death kind of things. Like there's no definite beginning and ending. Sometimes it's just about getting this out. And we also know that because spirituals were first transmitted through oral tradition, that somebody could hear something on one plantation, they get sold to another one, they start singing it, but they may have forgotten what they actually heard and they remembered something else. And so every now and then you'll have some spirituals that will have the same verses. I mean, there, there's one that mixes the Old Testament and New Testament. And you're like, but Mary and Martha 
they have nothing to do with like the three Hebrew boys. Like, you know, it's something to that effect. In and hold on, the, the refrain it just says, hold on, hold on, keep your hand on the plow, hold on. So you could think about that being maybe relating directly to the work that the slaves had to do in the field. But the verse, and this is the real reason I bring this up, is because you know that the slave is talking to somebody and you hear Nora, Nora. And you're like, who is Nora? Because everybody's like, I don't know who, like we, we know about Harriet Tubman and that kind of stuff, but her nickname wasn't Nora, it was Moses. So we try to figure out who is Nora. Well, I learned that in most African languages, if not all, there does not exist consecutive vowel sounds. And so if you think about the African slaves who were over here, they already had their own languages, but then they had to learn English, but they never had to say a word that had vowel sound after vowel sound. They then just instinctively inserted a consonant. So Nora is actually Noah. Noah and the ark. And so you then have Noah, Noah, let me come in. Doors all fastened in the window's pen. And for those who know the story of Noah and the ark, you had all these people who thought he was crazy. He's building this big old boat. They're like, why? What's this rain stuff you're talking about? Anybody here? There's no such thing as rain, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then after he gets his sons and three daughter-in-laws and all the animals and his wife, um, can't forget her, and all the animals in, they shut the door rain starts coming down. And so you got folks out there, no, no, let me come in. The doors are fastened, the window's pin. Basically, you locked everybody out and I want to get in. Um, and so that's at least that, that first line with that. And yeah, so it, it goes through um, a few other things. I mean, because later on, it talks about um, uh, every, I, I didn't include this verse in there, but there's one that's talking about every, uh, like climbing a ladder and every rung goes higher and higher and that kind of stuff doesn't have anything technically to do with keeping your hand on a plow. Because if you're talking about a plow, you're not getting on a ladder and that kind of stuff. So each line does not necessarily relate to each other, but there is something that can be gathered from individual lines or sometimes consecutive lines. Yeah. So let's go over to Invitation to Love. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to composing it, what inspired you to write this piece based off the text here? Mm -hmm. So I love to, uh, when I can, to use the poetry of uh, Black poets. I've read a little bit of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's work, and whether I'm in it or not, I'm a sucker for love. I just love love. I uh, got to that poem and I was like, ooh, I like this. I was thinking of treble voices, and it just so happened that I was one of the TAs for Women's Glee Club. I was with uh, Judy Bowers was conductor. It was her last year at Florida State. We didn't know that, obviously, when things started off. So I wrote the piece, finished it in the fall, maybe, dis maybe November, emailed it to her, and maybe a week later, I still remember walking out of the choral library to go do something. 
she just happened to be walking towards me and she said, Marcus, I was coming over to see if you were in there because I just have to tell you, I love this piece. We're doing it next semester. And I was just like, oh, wow, thank you. So that's part of the reason why it's dedicated to FSU Women's Glee Club because they were the ones who premiered it and she was the reason why it got to be performed. In that piece, as I was working on it, I had learned what many people know, Judy Bauer's term, the rules of expressive singing. As I was working on it, and even as I'm putting in some of the expressive markings, I'm thinking about these rules <laughs> and how you can apply so many of them to that piece. So uh, yeah, that one was, just, it was a lot of fun to uh, to work on it. Hearing the group do it for the first time, and just in those rehearsals, I was just like, whoa, this is what I wrote. It, it, no matter how many times I hear a piece or how many pieces have been performed, I get this immense sense of joy. I mean, it's, it's humbling. The last section I want to talk about a little bit, the aleatoric section, what made you think about using that technique? So when I read the poem, a lot of times, and when I read stuff, if I can't create a picture in my head, then it's not real to me. And so as I read that poem repeatedly, and as I was working on it, the thing that kept coming back to me, and I still don't know why, but I saw, you see, you know in those movies, when they have like the, the scenes from heaven and you got like the clouds and like just the angels are just like sitting up there and they're just, that kind of thing where it's like inviting people in. That's what I saw. But when I look at that, I see not like we see a choir, but it's just people just randomly placed about just standing in any kind of formation and they're literally inviting. And so if they are all doing their own thing, it's not, you know, the show choir move where everybody's putting their hands, you know, everybody's got the same movement together. No, this is them on their own. So that's why I was like, oh, I can make this last part aleatory. While there are plenty of choir pieces that have aleatory in them, there are not a ton. It's nice to be able to give the ensemble the opportunity to literally create the music. That was Dr. Marcus Garrett, Assistant Professor of Music and Choral Activities at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His arrangements and compositions have been published by several companies, including GIA Publications, Santa Barbara Music Publishing, and Henshaw Music. Hey. Oh, hi. Glad <laughs> I'm mute. Hey, How's everything hey. going, man? Good. How you doing? I'm good. Tired, but good. So speaking from the band side of things is our next guest, 
Dr. Chandler Wilson. I am the assistant director of athletic bands and assistant professor of music education at Florida State University. I am a native of Miami, Florida. He's an educator, published composer, and incidentally, my first conducting teacher. Bananas. Uh, <laughs> I guess a good place to start is how you first got involved in music and how that journey kind of started for you. Oh, uh, so I got started in music. I, I grew up in a, a very musically talented family. My mom was a clarinet player. My uncle was a horn player. My grandma played piano. This is all on my mom's side. And then my dad uh, was the music minister at my grandma's church. All my aunties sing. And uh, I have a cousin that's a music minister in Tampa, cousin that plays bass real sick. So we're like, we've had music people in the family all over the place. Uh, I'm the only one that does it as a career out of everybody. Uh, you know, my dad sang professionally for a while, uh, but I was always around music. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those things that never left. Uh, I was involved in a lot of other things too. I ran track, I played baseball, I was a really good baseball player. But the one thing that stuck was music. So um, I kind of started with piano following my dad. I remember I was at Miami Shores Elementary and uh, I was like third grade and we were walking out of class and I played some chords on the piano. I think it was just something I saw my dad play. And our music teacher, Mr. Arnold, asked, well, do you know what you just did? And I said, no. And, you know, times were different back then. He said, well, just come back after school. And I said, sure. You know, and we went back and that started pretty much my whole music career uh, or my, my passion for, for, for music was uh, third grade. And then I was playing piano at our graduation in fifth grade. You know, that's kind of pretty much how I got started. It was really just, it's always been around more so than anything else. So it's just, it was always something to do. That's great. And you mentioned that was your uh, elementary music teacher who said stick around after school? Yes, it was, uh, yeah, my elementary music teacher, Mel Arnold. And actually, he's a Florida State graduate too. Would you say he yeah. was one of your bigger inspirations growing up as a kid? Um, at the beginning, yes. My biggest inspiration would probably be my middle school band director. Uh, his name is Evan Allen. And it's just because he really showed us how to, to navigate our way through music. And we became, uh, and I didn't really notice until I got older. And, you know, we were sight reading and, you know, in all state and all these groups, but the foundation pretty much started from him. So Mr. Arnold got me started, but Mr. Allen, he gave me the big, the big push. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's really great. Yeah. So you are a saxophone player by trade. Did you start playing saxophone in middle school? No, I was oh. a trumpet player. I was an all-state trumpet player. <laughs> oh, wow. You. Yeah, I was. But uh switched to saxophone on the latter half of middle school and got really serious about it in high school. So start trumpet, play saxophone. And mm -hmm. along the way, when did you start doing your own compositions? Was that further after high school, during college? Um, it kind of came after college as far as the composition stuff or in college. Um, I started arranging, which was kind of how I got involved in the whole idea. Uh, I started arranging for a marching band in high school. And actually, this same keyboard, I've had this keyboard for over 20 years now. My parents, I know they had to go through a lot to get it for me. And I started arranging stuff for a marching band. And then I started arranging stuff at Florida a University, uh, where I got my undergraduate degree. And it was, I think, Theory 3. And we were doing some modal stuff, started playing with Finale with some of the modal scales and stuff that we were learning and just tried to make something out of it. And that's kind of how the whole composition thing started. I, I wrote something and I gave it to uh, Dr. Bentley Shellhammer, which was uh, associate dean at Florida State at the time. 
and I was playing the Tallahassee winds and uh, I asked him if we could read it just so I can hear it live. And he was like, sure, we'll put it on a concert. It was just that quick. And, uh, you know, that started the whole process ideally, but it didn't really get heavy until I started teaching because I was writing music uh, that I could play as a saxophone player or, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of times when we were at that advanced level of music, the first several things we write are technical. It's stuff that's going to be challenging to us. Uh, but when I got my first band, I realized that we weren't going to be able to play most of the stuff that I wrote anyway. Mm-hmm. So I learned to change my writing style and uh, having mentors like Neil Jenkins, who was the executive director of FBA now, that kind of helped. And my first published piece was a commission by uh, John Nista, who was at Rebelwood Middle, but he was doing the seventh, eighth grade Allstate band for Florida. And we both played in the Broward Symphonic Band at the time. And he said, hey, can you write something for the Allstate band? a little opener piece or something like that. And uh, that's called Journey Through the Grassy River. And we played it and uh, came across somebody at Midwest, the publisher of BRS Music, and just asked them, well, how do we submit? Well, how does that process work? They told me and I submitted and they said, we'll publish it. And it was just like, oh, okay. So that's kind of how it got started. So it was really more process started in high school with arranging, getting a chance to get some stuff played in college and then taking the next step forward post. And, you know, once I started teaching. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Let's shift a little bit. We're going to talk about one of your newer pieces, which is a sweet 44 working with you as kind of a former student and seeing you progress with that piece. That was really neat. Could you talk a little bit about the story behind sweet 44 and mainly who it's written for? Sure. Uh, Sweet 44 ended up being my doctoral project. I was actually looking to figure out what my, you know, dissertation was going to be about. You know, most people have, I'm, I'm not a quantitative, qualitative kind of guy. <laughs> so it was like, well, what can I do uh, that was going to work? And uh, it all really started um, on the inauguration day. Because, you know, it was, it was kind of tradition for the outgoing president to leave a, you know, a letter on the desk for the new incoming president and CNN was covering it. And President Obama walked out and his walk is just so cool. Like, he's just, it, it's just, it has the most swag I've ever seen. And uh, I was like, man, it'd be cool to write a piece, you know, on his walk. And then it just hit me. I was like, that's what I can do. Maybe I can write a piece and turn it into some other stuff that, you know, I needed to create the dissertation about it. But it ended up becoming a piece that was my perspective on President Obama. You know, it's not a political piece. It's not, you know, that he was the best president in the world, X, Y, and Z. It's just for me. Uh, being an African-American male, seeing somebody accomplish something that none of us really thought was going to happen, at least even during our lifetime. And I'm sure our parents would say that and our grandparents could say the same thing. Uh, but he did it, you know, and that's, that's, you know, it wasn't an easy road. And uh, it started with a performance back in 2006, five, six, uh, where he came down to Tampa. And uh, family, we have this group that we call the Virtuoso Band, which is like our souped up marching band with all the best players. And we were asked to come down and perform at one of his rallies. One voice can change a room. And if a voice can change a room, it can change a city. And if it can change a city, it can change a state. And if it can change a state, it can change a nation. And if it can change a nation, it can change the world. And uh, we went down to Tampa. We got on the amphitheater. We played some tunes. 
we stood at a uh, this guy Barack who he was like low on the you know the Democratic poll, and um, then we found it was a black dude, and we were like, ah, okay, he won't be president, but we'll do it just because you know we get paid to do whatever we need to do, and. When he finished speaking, we all got on that bus and we were like, hey, this dude is kind of, you know, he's a little, there's something special about him. And we got a chance to perform from here for him, at least I did, two other times, his inaugural parade and things like that. So that connectivity of watching him go from somebody that nobody knew to the president of the United States in a matter of two years was uh, very unique. So the piece itself has five movements and each of them uh, have different personal perspectives. And the first movement is this mysterious kind of who was this guy type deal. So it's built off a Lydian scale, which has this magicness to it. Uh, but it's just kind of who is he and what makes him so exciting? What makes him the guy? And it ends a little triumphantly to kind of be like, well, you know what, maybe he does have a chance. The, the second movement itself speaks on his, his cool nature a bit. So it starts with this um, one little line, just and that, that rhythm actually says Barack Hussein Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, Barack Hussein Obama. This is basically just a repetition of his name. Um, and there's a little quotes of uh, hail to the chief in there. You hear this boom, 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 type deal. But I put a little hip hop section in there uh, with some cool little things because it just sits, I mean, he has a playlist <laughs> that you know people kind of like uh, but it would just it speaks to his coolness of nature uh, more than anything else and uh, you know he had to go through some some things but he was still always himself if I had to give it a title maybe I called it like the tan suit because it was just so different when he, you know, went to the tan suit and did things. The third movement has this kind of dark bluesy kind of deal, mainly it's a trumpet feature, but that represents Chicago. So the kind of blues scene that Chicago has you know, of course, we try to make it as authentic as possible, but then, of course, you know, having some type of, uh, you know, I guess my, my, my sound in my head uh, in there as well. So it also uh, features a soprano sax solo, a little small, small soprano sax solo in there, uh, some jazz vibes at the beginning and the end. Uh, but it, 
supposed to represent the coolness of Chicago. Uh, you know, if you were out going to you know the Blue Note at one o'clock in the morning, kind of deal, a little smoky a bit. Then the fourth movement is just angry <laughs> for the most part. Um, and it's taken from, um, and I don't, I, I shouldn't know what off the top of my head, but the theme itself, the B, B, D, Dom, Bomb, is from a Negro spiritual where it's something along the lines of uh, like Jesus be with me or um, something along that Jesus hold me. And that's because that movement represents pretty much the turmoil and stuff that he had to go through uh, with, you know, people having all these um, caricatures, uh, you know, of him looking like a monkey, calling his wife an ape, uh, you know, people picking on his children, you know, and, you know, challenging his citizenship and stuff like that. And how that can just be frustrating when you're just trying to do good for people and you may have folks that are trying to pull you down. So that one has the, a bit of anger uh, behind it, and it's really aggressive, kind of the, the loudest moments uh, within a piece uh, in there. The last movement is just really the synopsis of all of them. So it starts with like the second movement, and then there's stuff from the first movement in there and little areas of anger on the end, but it ends, you know, in it's kind of glorious fashion, uh, more so than anything else. And uh, I wrote the fifth movement first and then extracted the fifth movement into the four other movements and tried to find things that I can put to, to create them separately as well. So I think the idea at first was to turn it into a symphony and it, uh, that's gonna take too long. So uh, Dr. Dunning was like, maybe you should do a suite. And I said, yeah, that sounds actually a good idea. So we just broke it up and do it that way. So that's kind of the big, quick, overall synopsis of the whole piece in general. That was Dr. Chandler Wilson, Assistant Director of Athletic Bands at Florida State University. You can check out his music through CL Barnhouse Company or check out his website. My website will be published in the next two weeks or so, and that'll be uh, ChandlerWilsonMusic.com. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to talk to you. All right. You too. And stay safe. You too. So our final guest for the episode is one that I am very excited to introduce. She is an old friend of mine and no stranger to the South Florida jazz scene. I miss you! I miss you too! Hey! Good to see you! What's going on with you before we get started? 
No, sure, yeah. Um, I'm finishing up the semester. I've got an internship down in Broward. So I'll actually be in the area from August. Yeah. Yes! She is assistant professor of music at Florida Memorial University, director of the Jazz Education Community Coalition. So you're going to be doing jazz band and write, and you are still writing, of course. I love your writing. Do you really? Yes! Oh. You wrote some cool stuff. Appreciate it. I only had like the one thing, but it's kind of like a, a one hit for me. <laughs> I hope you're going to write though. That would be great. A performer, teacher, arranger, composer. So yeah, but no, it's great to see you. Thanks for thinking about me. No problem. This is Nicole Yarma. <laughs> Welcome, 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 welcome. So how, how did you first get involved with music? Um, well, I, I was laughing because I was thinking about my first composition was called I Cannot Fly. And it was on a toy piano that I got for Christmas. I was probably four or five. I, my dad played uh, piano and I always just loved music. I played, I started in public school like everyone else. I really wanted to play cello. But, you know, they always have more violins and more of a need for violinists than they do for cellos. So that's how I got started in public school and when they actually had music programs in Brooklyn, New York. So, yeah. so you mentioned your dad played piano. Would you say he was a big inspiration for you when you grew up? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. He, he played jazz piano and organ. We had an organ for a short while. And there were always jazz records around my house, which is really ironic and funny because I remember sitting with a Dexter Gordon album called Daddy Plays the Horn. And it had this kid, you know, you know the, the, the record, the yeah. recording? All right, it's a great recording. And it was a kid with a saxophone. And I couldn't really draw, but I would put the record on and lay on the floor with a piece of paper and copy the picture. Mm. And I was listening to jazz not because I thought it was hip. Those are the records in my house. I listened to everything. I listened to Motown. I listened to rock and roll. I listened to everything. But the jazz records were in my house. And I never thought twice about it. I'm listening to Donald Byrd. I didn't understand what I was listening to. Because <laughs> it's funny, there was a, a recording called Taylor's Wailers. I remember listening to that recording and I could sing solos. And it wasn't like I was trying, like, again, I wasn't trying to be hip. This was so just a part of what I listened to. So I was listening to the music early on without even realizing, you know, that I would develop into playing jazz. Yeah. So, You're just playing that scene. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And I listened, I played in school. My friends didn't think it was cool. So I, you know, I kind of stopped playing. And then when I went to college, I actually started playing music again. And my friend, a friend took me to my very first jam session in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. uh, Lou Donaldson lived there, Dakota Staten lived in the area and people came in and, and I actually got up and played and, and with an acoustic violin into a microphone, <laughs> which is kind of silly, but I got the bug. 
Mm-hmm. I got the book. That was the beginning of it for me. I mean, that's, and then the rest is a long story, but that's where it started. Well, I mean, once you get bit, it's kind of hard to go back, so. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. It was the challenge of walking in and not knowing any songs at all. <laughs> yeah. And then going over in the corner and kind of sawing and figuring this stuff, the songs out as you went. Yeah. The coolest experience in the world. That's such an intimidating moment. I don't know how people just like, they get on the bandstand and they play that first tune. It's like, I don't know what's going on. And no. I just go home and shed for hours. There were always people that were there and encouraged you. Mm-hmm. You know, they said, go home and practice. Come back. But come back. And no one ever said, get out of here, go away. They always kind of encouraged you. So even though it felt a little strange, you know, getting up and not knowing what you were doing, you eventually figured it out. You know? that, has, that planted, talking about planting seeds, that planted seeds for what I would do later on. Right. You know? So growing up in New York, like you mentioned, you had all these large people in the field of jazz. And one in particular you mentioned in pretty much all your bios, uh, Joe Williams. Feels so good when the lady calls my name. Feels so good when she calls my name. Calls me so easy and oh so doggone plain. It's good to get loved. How did those interactions start? That's really bizarre because that started here in Florida. Oh, really? There was a guy here that played vibes named Joe Rowland. Mm-hmm. He played with George Shearing and a bunch of other people. Great guy. And he was a little gruff. So he would say, ah, if, if you ever make a jazz recording, I've got a friend. Well, everybody says that to you, right? So years went by, maybe 10 years. And I was doing a gig with my ex, John Yarling, Jeff Grubb, who's now playing with the Pittsburgh Symphony, and Dave Siegel. And it was Art Deco. And traditionally, Art Deco weekend is usually the coldest weekend in Florida. It was about 40 or 50 degrees and we're playing outside and people would gather and go, yay. And then they'd run the hotel across the street. But there was something magical about that group of people. And Jeff was leaving to go to play with the Pittsburgh Symphony. He got the gig. So I said, we have to record before you leave. So we went in and dear friend recorded us and it was a demo. So I went back to my friend, Joe, and I said, hey, Joe, I finally did this recording. I don't know if this guy's still alive. So he sends him the recording and he really liked what he heard. And he said, I want to introduce you to someone. So he introduced me to Joe Williams. Now, there is a weird story that goes with that. There was a guy in town named Mike Morgenstern. Mike Moe, he called himself. He had a club called Moe Jazz. So I'm working in the club. And in between sets, he would always show videos. So he's showing this video of Joe Williams with Ella, Peggy Lee, and somebody else. I'm watching the video and I'm going, man, I would love to be her. I think at the time it was Peggy Lee. And I went back to doing what I was doing. Almost a year to the day that I said that, and I couldn't make, I couldn't script this any better. I was on my way to Tampa to meet Joe Williams and to perform with it for the first time. So I, that's why I say never be careful of a jazz boy. Um, we met, he liked me, I liked him. And then we set up a recording in Pittsburgh. This uh, Jeff, the 
the bass player that got the gig with this, the Pittsburgh Symphony had the weekend off. We're recording at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild. Everything worked out. So we did two live concerts with Joe Williams and myself. And that was the record. We are in a state of grace, mm. and we want to thank you for sharing that lovely voice of yours, your radiance mm. and, and love and energy. Boy. So the idea was I was going to go on the road with Joe, and he would introduce me to his audience. Then I could go back and, and tour on my own. And then he passed away. Mm. But... The weird thing about this was I went to a service. He lived in Vegas and he had all these famous friends. There were about 500 people at the service. And I'm sitting there and this guy gets up who I don't know at all. And he starts to talk about uh, when Joe left the Basie band. Basie took the night off, got on the train and went to Boston with Joe. And the marquee outside read in very small letters, Count Basie presents and in large letters, Joe Williams. Well, the CD that we did read Joe Williams in small letters and my name in big letters. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea at the time. I had no idea what he was doing. What Basie did for him, he did for me. Yeah. So I sat at the service and I cried like a baby. <laughs> and then I went to his wife and John Levy, who wound up being my, my manager as well. And I asked him if I could write a book. So I did. The book is another story for another day mm -hmm. because it was never published, but doing that research is what kind of prompted me to doing what I do. I mentioned to you that, you know, New York, I had all these people that mentored me and saw something in me that I didn't see in me. Joe did the same thing. So I'm doing all this research and I'm kind of researching his life and really interesting life. And I realized that I have to do what Joe did for me, for other people. Mm -hmm. The only way you can keep what you learn is to give it away. And I've heard this said a bunch of times, but it didn't dawn on me until I actually was in a situation where, where people were offering, throwing jobs at me, teaching jobs. And I was like, eh, nah, I don't want to teach. I don't want to teach. And then the longer I <laughs> stayed away from when I finally decided to teach, I was like, well, what do I have to say to people? Or what can I teach? And then you start to realize you have a lot to give away. Some of it's not necessarily from a book. Some of it's life experience. Some of it's saving people from scraping their knees, falling down and getting the, you know. <laughs> you know, you save them the, the idea of tripping. You can, you can impart your experience, musical experience and life experience and save people a lot of headache. That's so important. I realized along with everything else you teach, life lessons are equally as important as anything you teach with music, you know? So, yeah. So Joe was uh, the impetus for me <laughs> to really, really kind of uh, stay the educational route. Because I got grief from people. They would say, well, why don't you do this? You should be doing this and you should be doing that. I said, no, I should be doing what, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring spirituality in for a second. But I think God had a plan for me. I wound up doing what I'm doing because I think this was the path my life was um, supposed to take. Blame it on my 
Sister Dowells. <laughs> Miss Nicole Yarley. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about education, what you do. We haven't really been talking a lot about your personal compositions, which I know you have a couple out there and you've been performing. Um, <laughs> the one that just sticks to mind right now is, is Dita Law, because that's the one that you just do pretty much, seems like every concert. But it's such a like a neat tune. It's very simple. It's very easy to play, and it just it, it gets stuck in your head super easily. Do you mind talking about just your composition process and how like tunes like that came about? The most, I have the most bizarre process for writing. When I sit down and try to force something, it never works. A lot of the time ideas come to me. First of all, I hear most things in my head. I'm a terrible piano player, but I can, I play enough piano to, to write, but most ideas come to me and I don't even, I think that idea came to me, the melody came to me in my head. Not even, not on my violin. I just kind of started singing this little melody. And then the chords came. So this next song I wrote, and it's actually called Didala. You know my Didala song. It's called Didala because it doesn't have any words. And that's what felt good in my mouth when I wrote it. I'll sing the melody so you'll understand. Didala, didala. The better things that I write come to me in one sitting. You know what I mean? Um, there are things that I've written that I've developed, but for the most part, most of my, my writing comes to me here, and then I'll pick up my instrument or I'll go to the piano and kind of figure it out. Now that I'm using logic, I will lay stuff down. But most of the writing is, yeah, it's spontaneous. Oh, and so every time we do it, again, it's slightly different. It is really up to whatever Rodolfo decides to play. I wrote a song called I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And I was in my car, I was driving along. Maybe I was listening to the radio and my angel was, maybe they were doing something, a story or something about her. And then I started, I sat there and I started to think about why I would think a cage bird would sing. And so I wrote a whole lyric based around my perception of cage bird. Um, I remember driving down the road and I was thinking about, mm, I was thinking about blowing in the wind. And for some reason, equinox came into mind, right? Dang, dang, dang. 
boom, boom. So I thought the combination of the two was a great idea. <laughs> so, I mean, not necessarily everything is original, but a lot of arrangements, things, combination. This is really apropos. I was listening to Charlie Hayden's Silence. Beautiful song, very sparse. And I heard it and I said, oh my God, I want to do this song. Listen into it. And We Shall Overcome popped into my head. Uh, this next song, <laughs> when Charlie Hayden passed away, I, I was trying to find a song of his to do, and I found the song, and I superimposed it over another song. And just coincidentally, today, we overcame. The Confederate flag came down. It's just one small step. <laughs> and I, I was gonna do the song before the flag came down, and it had absolutely nothing to do with it, but I just kind of, the song is called Silence, and I kind of think, we live in a world where no one listens to each other. You know, we all kind of coexist, but... So, this song, to me, is like, perfect. The beauty of that was that everybody has their own agenda. And this was before, you know, COVID and, and protests. But nobody's listening to anybody else, so everybody's kind of canceling each other's agenda out. So we need this space, we need the silence, and We Shall Overcome just works over the song. And so I said, and I say it every time I perform it, I will continue to do this song until things kind of upend themselves, until we're okay. I've been doing it now for a couple of years. Right. And it makes me sad that I have to, but it's very powerful. The two songs together are very powerful. You know, so uh, n not everything is original. I, I do write and I've got a ton of originals, but in part, I like to combine things. And I really like to, like I said, I have a very busy brain. So <laughs> a lot of things just pop into my head and I try them together. And most of the time they work. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a little eureka moment. Like, oh, this is great. This works. We can combine different things and come up with incredible music. You know, I'm not, everything doesn't come from the Great American Songbook. Everything doesn't come from jazz uh, compositions. It comes from whatever inspires you, you know? I think you were one of the first people to introduce me to that concept of just taking one song and mashing with another. I remember we did Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay. Yes. And we paired it with, oh, what? Uh, what Sunny. Is that? Yeah, Sunny, that's it. Yeah. You cannot copyright a chord progression. That's why there's so many contrapacts. You can't take somebody's melody, but you can take the chord progression and write songs. That was Nicole Yarman. She's the assistant professor of music at Florida Memorial University and director of the Jazz Education Community Coalition. You can find her album, Joe Williams Presents Nicole Yarman, on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. I do.
you. Thank you all so much for checking out this latest episode of Music Talks, Discussions on Music Education. On a personal note, this episode has really been my response to the current social climate that has been plaguing our nation. As Nina Simone so eloquently puts it, we all have a story to tell. But at this moment, the stories found in the music of black performers and composers not only need to be heard, but celebrated. The stories of R. Nathaniel Dett, Joe Williams, and so many others deserve our attention. Their music matters. So support their music. Listen to it, program it, and if you don't know where to start, check out this episode's bio, where we linked not only the music of our guests, but also helpful resources that give underrepresented musicians a platform. I also wanted to point out that due to time constrictions, a lot of the content from these interviews was unfortunately left out. Cramming over three hours of conversation in a roughly 60-minute episode is pretty difficult to accomplish. So, instead of archiving this audio, we're planning on making a part two of this episode and share our guests' insights on some really interesting topics, including how to get published, work with community ensembles, and program repertoire that represents the underrepresented. This episode featured audio recordings of Nina Simone performing Stars live at Montreux, Nathaniel Dett's Oratorio, The Ordering of Moses, and Joe Williams on the album Joe Williams Presents Nicole Yarling. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Marcus Garrett, Dr. Chandler Wilson, and Nicole Yarling. Original compositions and arrangements from our guests used with their permission, respectively. On behalf of Florida NAFME Collegiate, I'm David Ramos. Thanks for listening to Music Talks.